We don't even know his name. His story is told briefly in a few short verses in the Gospels. He appears in the account of the crucifixion. Uh, We have set up one cross on the stage as a visual reminder of what we're um, worshiping today and what has happened and what God has done for us. But in fact, there were three crosses. We heard the Scriptures read already two others who were criminals. This is Luke 23 were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So on either side of Jesus during this crucifixion, criminals hung on each side of him. And one of them is this unnamed man. I mean, they were both unnamed, but one we want to spend some time thinking about. Good Friday is all about Jesus. The right and proper focus of our time together is to think about the thing that Jesus has done for us and who He is and all of the impacts of that. But what about this man, this one criminal? Augustine uh, had this phrase to describe him in Latin, latro laudabilis et mirabilis. A thief to be praised and wondered at. And so this day is indeed about Jesus, but but this man is to be praised because of the inexplicable faith that we're going to see him exercise. And he's to be wondered at because of what the whole thing says about Jesus. So we're going to take this time on Good Friday to examine this encounter between Jesus and this one criminal. We're going to examine this encounter for what it is. Without much, unlike what we normally would do when we open the Scriptures together on Sundays, without much drawing of conclusions, without much applying of principles, And my hope is that we can be at the scene. That we could imagine ourselves being in Jerusalem on that darkest of all days in history. That we would have seen the crowds, that we would have known what went on, that we would have followed them and seen Jesus carry this cross beam through the streets of Jerusalem. That we would have seen them nail him to the cross and lift him up that we would have stayed at the foot of the cross watching, listening, experiencing all of it. We would imagine ourselves at the scene, hearing the conversation and watching it all unfold, looking at it without prejudice, looking at it without knowing all the things we know, staying in Friday without consideration to Sunday. Examining it with pre-resurrection eyes. Feeling the tension of the moment. Asking the questions, but not necessarily providing the answers. We'll simply come to the foot of the cross. And enter into the scene. 
So as we stood there at the place of the skull, we saw one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But then we heard the other who rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And then that man, as he said those words, turned to Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What would you be thinking, standing there, watching this happen, hearing this conversation between these two men who are dying right before you? What would you be thinking of this conversation? Now what is evident first is that this criminal detested Jesus. He detested him. Now you would miss this in Luke's account, but over in Matthew's gospel, it says that the robbers, plural, the robbers, both of them, who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. Both of them reviled him. One translation says they heaped insults on him. Not just one insult, they were heaping insults on him. Another translation says they taunted him. At least initially, both of them did. Now, by the way, this is how far, when we're trying to enter into how far Jesus has gone for us, this is how far Jesus has fallen. Even two men who are condemned and dying with him, who are at the lowest point in their own lives, even those men are mocking him. That's how far Jesus has fallen. But then I'm thinking as I'm watching this scene, like did, did they have any reason to actually taunt Jesus, mock him, scorn him in this way? Luke 23, 39 says, they railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Didn't you say you were the Messiah? Aren't you supposed to be the Savior? Save yourself and us. That is not sincerity. It's sarcasm, it's cutting. This is not a sincere appeal for salvation, but this is an angry man's last, last gasp. This is an angry man, angry man, angry men lashing out. A dying man's parting shot at a world that he believed in him wrong. And so even at death, these criminals can only muster rage. rather than any repentance for what they had done, or, or even, or even if, if they were unwilling to repent, at least some regret. Only rage. These men had spent their lives scorning God, scorning His laws, scorning His created order, 
scorning his people. By all accounts, they were thieves and murderers. It wasn't just that they were robbers, just that they took things that didn't belong to them, but they killed people when they did. They chose their place in that society. They caused fear and pain for so many others. They stole the peace and sense of security that people had. They deprived families of not only their possessions, but their loved ones. They were guilty. And for no good reason, here at the end of their lives, they, they're mocking the one who preached peace. who preached security, who preached hope, who demonstrated love, who healed people, who was the best embodiment of everything that God was that anyone had ever seen. And yet they mocked him. And they reveal something in that as you and I stand there and watch them die and mock him, they reveal something that is built into the heart of every man, woman, and child. An illogical repulsion to God and his ways. We detest him. We wouldn't say so necessarily with our words, but in the way we live. Most of us are not quite as extreme as these two. We're not criminals in that sense of it. But it is in all of us to rebel against God. And maybe standing there and watching these two die and treating Jesus the way they were just woke that up in us. But by this point, our criminal, the one, has actually stopped mocking Jesus for whatever reason, instead, he appealed to Jesus. I mean, what? Think about this for a second. Like, what would compel a man? What would compel a man in his situation, given the circumstances, to express any hope whatsoever in Jesus who was in the same condition that he was? Nailed to a cross, bleeding out hours to live. Why would one man in that situation appeal to another? The impossibility of Jesus helping him seems obvious to us as we watch them all die in front of us. If it's not too irreverent to say it, this is actually a ridiculous exchange that has no merit. There's no reasonable rationale for a dying man to ask another dying man to save him. If this man had heard at some point, and it's very likely that he did, if he had heard at some point Jesus' claims to be a Messiah, maybe he was in the city of Jerusalem, maybe he heard him teaching, maybe he heard others talking about him. Maybe he heard the trial. He certainly knew what was nailed above Jesus' head, the accusation that he was the, quote-unquote, king of the Jews. There was a sign over his head, too, that said that he was a robber and a murderer. 
If this man had heard at some point that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, he now needed to accept the fact, as everyone else had, that he was not, in fact, the Messiah. As Jesus hung there dying, there was no longer any admissible evidence that Jesus was who he had claimed to be. On what basis is this man appealing to Jesus? His disciples had scattered. He spent three years teaching them. They were gone. The crowds that a week before had lauded him coming into the city praised him as their king. Not only were gone, but had actually called for his crucifixion. It was over. As we stand there listening to this conversation, we know it. And yet this man rebuked his criminal friend saying, do you not fear God? So was that it? Was that what was going on for this criminal? Was the, was the fear of God beginning to dawn on him because he knew he was mere hours away from seeing God? To whom he would now give an account? I, I wonder if he was remembering some of the things that he had learned in synagogue as a boy. Was he bringing to mind Numbers 32? Be sure your sin will find you out. His sin had found him out. He was the, now paying the price for his sin. And he was now going to have to give an account to God for it. Was the, was the faith that he had been taught as a child and which he had at some point obviously rejected, was that faith now in these last hours of his life, was that faith now coming back to him? Did he think about Psalm 31, which he also would have been taught at synagogue? Did it come to mind for him? Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. Was he now looking back on a life where he goes, you know what? I didn't have the goodness of God, but the reason why I didn't have the goodness of God is because I never feared God. Was he doing the spiritual math to put it all together? Was he realizing that the righteous fear of a holy God secures forgiveness? Not fear of judgment so much as a right honoring of the one who saves, of the only one who can save. It's unsurprising that he would come to that conclusion because he had heard Jesus say, of his executioners. This is the first thing Jesus said as he was being crucified and the Roman soldiers were doing this terrible uh, deed to him. The words that rolled out of Jesus' mouth were, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The criminal had heard that. 
He heard Jesus invoking God's forgiveness for these men who were killing him. Do you think I want in on that forgiveness? If God could forgive these Roman soldiers, if God could forgive the Jewish leadership that had sent him there, if God could forgive the crowds, probably forgive me. So he said to his friend, he's putting it all together, verse 40, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. He confesses. He admits it. He puts it right out there. He, He owns his sin. He declares his guilt. He knows that there's no other path to God, no other path to the goodness of God but the fear of God. He knows that sin must be atoned for. Every Jewish boy and girl knew that. In fact, the temple was mere meters away from the site of the crucifixion. The temple that God had ordained be built so that the people could meet with God in that place, so that they could bring their lambs, so they could give them to the priests, so the lamb could be slaughtered, so the blood could flow and be put on the altar and their sins could be forgiven. He knew how this worked. Sin must be atoned for, it must be covered, it must be paid for. Every Jew knew that. He didn't stop with his confession. He said this further, but this man, pointing to Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. We're guilty. He's not. So is this what he noticed? Is, is, is all of this what's compelling this man who's in the most desperate of situations to appeal to another man who's in the same situation? Is this what's compelling him? Is it Jesus' innocence that serves as the catalyst for this request and appeal? Is this what drew him in? As I said, we're just standing there watching this conversation, listening in on it. We're trying to put it together. He seemed to know that the only thing standing between him and peace with God was his unconfessed sin. That all he needed was to know God had forgiven him and that somehow this innocent man who was dying beside him, that somehow he held the key to this. And by the way, what did he have to lose? Might as well try. He's dying anyway. So he turned and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's it. That's all he says. Just remember me when you come in to your kingdom. 
It's remarkable in its simplicity. And I'm asking myself the question, is, is that it? Is that, is that his coming to Jesus moment? There's, there's nothing else attached to that? Is this his profession of faith? I might have some problems with that. If I'm standing there watching this happen and I'm thinking about the temple, I'm thinking about the system that was set up for the forgiveness of sins and I realize this man can't make any sacrifice. This man can do no more religious observances. This man cannot make amends for the sins that he has committed. There will be no religious evidence whatsoever to back up any profession of faith that he happens to be making. So as we stand there hearing all of this, this seems too easy. A mere declaration of faith? Of contrition? Is that really enough? But then Jesus didn't think it was anything other than genuine. Because apparently he was saved by Jesus. Just going by what we're hearing as we stand there and take in the conversation. Jesus responded to his appeal with this. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's a shocking statement for any of us who are standing there just watching all of this go down. Jesus and this man are both dying on crosses. Even if you believe that Jesus is innocent, even if you have a faith system that says that innocent, good people go to heaven, even if you believe that because of how he's lived his life, he would be deserving of eternal rest, even if you believed all of that about Jesus, there would still be no basis for the criminal to be assured of going to that place. Of going to paradise, of going to this eternal Eden that God promised to the redeemed dead. You know what this really seems like? This seems like false hope. This is, this is what we do with each other to make ourselves feel better when we're in a tough place, even though we know that the thing that we're saying is not true. We deliver false hope to each other. We, we lie, if I can say it this way, we lie for the purpose of alleviating suffering, sorrow, and disappointment. We justify it ethically, on the basis that it is better to lie and to tell someone that everything is going to be okay, even though we know it is not. That must be what's happening here, right? That this is just a very desperate, terrible situation, and Jesus is giving this guy some moments of peace before he actually dies. 
So he can die with a measure of peace. I mean, that's all we can conclude from what we're seeing here. It couldn't, it couldn't be that this man was really saved. Could it? It couldn't be that Jesus could actually save. Could he? As far as this man is concerned in the narrative, we read nothing else about him except that in John 19, we see that because they, the Romans wanted to hasten their deaths, sundown was coming, the Sabbath was starting, Passover was starting. They wanted to hasten their deaths. It would often take a long, long time for people to die in this manner, but they wanted to speed that along. And so the way that they would do that is by uh, breaking their legs. Crucifixion was death by blood loss and asphyxiation. The asphyxiation came because hanging as they were on the cross, they could not breathe apart from pushing up with their feet to release their diaphragm to inhale. Break their legs, we can't do that. And death is imminent. They wanted to speed things along, so they went to break their legs, and they did. They broke the legs of both of these criminals. Again, that's the last thing we know about this story. So what we don't have is any more information on the criminal's response to Jesus saying, today you're going to be with me in paradise. There's no note in the gospel that says, and he sighed peacefully. A look of hope came over his face. There was no thank you. I'm at peace, spoken back toward Jesus. We have nothing. Only that he hung there, and sometime later his legs were broken and he died. What were, this, what were the final hours of this man's life like? One thing we do know is that Jesus died first before either of the other two. possibly an hour or two before. John 19 tells us that when they came to Jesus, after breaking the legs of the other two men, they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead and need to break his legs. Jesus died first. Hours passed with this man seeing Jesus' lifeless body hanging there on the cross beside him. The scriptures, I believe, would tell us if the response was anything other than full acceptance of the promise received. This man died. Here's what we know for sure. This man died believing that he would see Jesus that day in paradise. In his mind, he was saved. In his mind, he was forgiven. saved by Jesus so far as we could tell 
So we watched Jesus die. And the criminals too. And the three bodies were removed and you and I walked away from the scene wondering at what we had witnessed. Still puzzled by some of the things that we heard. But one thing was made very clear to us as we stood there. Spurgeon said this, heaven and hell are not places far away. Heaven and hell are not places far away. We would have come away from that crucifixion knowing that our mortality is so fragile that our time here is so limited. What if like this man, these three men, your time is to come to an end in the next few hours? Are you ready to face heaven or for some hell? It's plainly obvious that it did not matter that one was innocent and two were guilty because all three died. All three entered into eternity. And that is our lot as human beings. When our time comes, as it did for the two criminals, I would think that we would want to hear the words, today you will be with me in paradise. Let me pray for us. Father, you have been so patient and kind toward us, bringing about your perfect plan uh, to redeem humanity. And because of your great love for us, which just seems so inexplicable given our sin, that that love compelled you to send your son to die for us. And so, Father, I pray that we would be gripped by that truth right now. God, I pray especially for those who, like the one criminal that we didn't speak very much of, despising God, railing on Him, remaining in His sin. Father, there are perhaps some in this room or some watching the live stream, Father, who as of this moment, have not appealed to Jesus for forgiveness. And God, I pray that they would have a proper and right fear of God in this moment. Not wanting to risk their eternity. Knowing heaven and hell are near, I pray that they would turn to you in faith mustering up whatever small amount of faith they have to simply call out to you. Remember me. And I pray for those who are already believers, Father, who have tasted and seen your goodness, who fear you, 
Not perfectly, of course. But God, I pray that we would be motivated again by the incredible sacrifice that you've made for us to live our lives more fully for you. And God, as we go into this time of, of remembrance, of simple ceremony that you've given to us to bring us back time and again to the cross. Father, I pray that we be gripped by the reality of it and that your Holy Spirit would come into this place. Your Holy Spirit would be with each one who's taking the table with us right now. And that would be a means of your grace in each of our lives. And I pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.